Well, thank you so much for having us. We're really delighted to be here. So, um, my name is Anna Manfred-Lundov and I teach at King's College London. Do you um, yes, I'm Sonia Lipchinska. I'm a library liaison manager at uh, King's College. Uh, I'm Teresa Elms. I'm also a library liaison manager. So, uh, Sonia and Teresa, they are both participants, uh, past participants now, of a course we run at King's College London, which is a two-year part-time program, a PGCAP program. I expect most or all of you will have similar programs in your institution. It's a Sometimes we call it the new academic programs, or it's a PG cert. So it's a program that's compulsory for new lecturers to take. It's part of their probation requirements, um, and I teach on that program. And um, only about, I think you were actually the first cohort where it was opened up to other people with teaching responsibilities in the institution. So this is where um, Sonia and Teresa came in from library services, um, and. You've had some more people from library services coming since yeah. then. We've all done incredibly well on the programme. So this is an interesting, this is, was not the key message of today, but we have noticed that the performance of librarians on our programme is a lot higher than the performance of some other participants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which we sort of, well, I don't want to go off topic too far, but there is an element where it is compulsory for new lecturers, but it's not compulsory for you guys. Um, so we think there's an element where the conscripts and the volunteers have a slightly different attitude towards the programme. Um, it's a relatively large programme. We had 240 students a year. Um, you did it, um, coming in. Then we had a higher increase in redundancy for the Kings, which meant our sort of numbers of new lecturers went down drastically, reducing my workload a lot. So it also went down from 240 to 240 the next year. Um, the programme is structured, there's a first year core module everyone has to take, and then in the sec second year there are option modules and there are a range of modules. Um, a lot of them are sort of quite core teaching focused assessment, feedback, curriculum design, technology enhanced learning. And so my background is originally in the sociology of education and when I started this role at King's College London I wanted to have a sociology of education module which uh, the program leader said we need to make this more applied, you can't just have a sociology of education module on an applied practitioner program. So this is how I came up with this module title, Teaching in the Context of Diversity. And I think when you two did it, it was really a barely disguised sociology of education. <laughs> <laughs> it has changed a little bit more now. Um, so the idea is to introduce participants to the context of higher education and facilitate um, reflection on practice. When when Beauty took the program and the publication that I've circulated that has arisen from this, there were five three-hour seminars. Now it's only it's changed a little bit. There was an assessment, of an assignment, which could either be a reflection or it could be um, a case study, sort of more scholarly. Um, and it was graded, and um, all of this has basically changed now. Now we do a poster, it's more interactive, and the practice uh, focus has increased uh, further. And we've also changed from having grades to pass-fail, so we have to see how that will pan out. We're also running a pilot this year. Some of you may have heard of a, sort of a social enterprise, the Brilliant Club. They are placing PhD students in secondary schools, so I've got 10 of them on my module this year as a sort of pilot to see whether we can get them some higher education accreditation 
who participate, please. Um, now, at King's College, we have an in-house higher education research journal, which I have circulated. Um, and what we usually do is every year we publish the best essays from the core program of the PGCAP, the first year program. The students who write the best essays there get their published, it's a prize-winning essay, and one sort of participant uh, gets an award at the annual Excellence in Teaching Conference. Now, what I found is having run the module for the first, in the first two years is that I had some really excellent, amazing pieces of work that I thought deserved some sort of greater um, airtime and recognition. So um, I got some money from my department to do a special issue of this in-house journal from my diversity module to showcase the best assignments. Um, so you got some additional fe feedback. I mean, you had your marks, you got no distinction, received a, achieved a distinction, and um, in addition, you then got additional feedback from academic peers and we created this um, special issue. We've tried, because the, uh, the issue, special issue is about teaching in the context of diversity, so we have tried to make the actual special issue more accessible than our standard publications. So we've got an online version that is compliant with the National uh, Institute for the Blind Guidelines for publications, which we should really do with everything we do. So in a way, it was quite a steep learning curve to realize we don't usually um, do this. We were also trying to make it more accessible in other ways in terms of providing speaker biographies and contextualizing it more than we do with some of our other work. So I've already spoken slightly too long. Um, I now want to hand over to Sonia, who unfortunately has to run off in about 10 minutes. So hopefully you can... Thank you for a second. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Right, um, so I, um, after the sessions with um, Anna, um, came up with the topic I wanted to look at, which uh, the title was Adopting Inclusive Strategies to Reach Students with Non-Disclosed Disabilities. Really, I, was just, I, was, I wanted to look at um, how to reach students with disabilities, but I was particularly interested in invisible disabilities and students who wouldn't necessarily disclose those disabilities and how you could um, reach them. Um, I suppose, without singling, um, singling them out. So, um, really, um, I looked at, uh, it was the idea that uh, not all disabilities are visible. I think we tend to um, culturally look for um, uh, physical markers of uh, disability. When you're looking at a student group, um, you might see if there's a student in a wheelchair or a student who is very obviously blind, those sorts of things, and you know already to make... Um, uh, to make arrangements for them, to have things ready for them. The students may also disclose um, that they have disabilities and then again you can work with them. Um, not all disabilities are visible. Um, you may have students with epilepsy, you may have students with um, partial vision, uh, there may also be students with uh, mental learning behavioural disorders that aren't obvious um, when you meet them or when you're teaching them in a big group. Um, and I think as I, I researched into this topic um, and as I actually thought about how I, um, I suppose, perceived groups of students and perceived their identity perceived, um, and perceived identities of disability, um, I thought it was actually quite easy um, to impose this identity of wellness on people really without thinking about what's going on in the background. Um, and then there's this additional... Um, 
issue with uh, non-disclosure. So it's completely up to the students whether they want to disclose their disability or not. There's absolutely no moratorium on that. Um, and there are many different reasons why they may not disclose. So um, they may have a desire to integrate. So they, their identity may be based in um, their own idea of their, their wellness, their abilities. They may not want to be treated differently from their peers. Um, they may have had in the past um, poor disclosure experiences with um, people that they've come up against. It may have been former teachers or it could have been parental figures. However, that happened for them. It may have made them um, unwilling to disclose at this point. Um, and also out of that fear of um, being stigmatised um, or being perceived as different or in need of extra special attention. So all of those factors may mean that these students remain silent um, and therefore if you've got a big group of students and I, I taught students sort of 30, 40, 50 plus in a room, it's very difficult then to um, see who may need help, who isn't speaking up, who's just um, sitting there silently, um, perhaps struggling with the content and you're not aware of that because of these factors. So what I want to think about was the idea of inclusivity, so making materials and delivering teaching that was entirely inclusive um, so that hopefully everybody would be able to gain from it, not just a select group of students, and that you wouldn't need uh, to single students out or they wouldn't need to ask you specifically for help. Hopefully the material and the manner of teaching would um, allow everybody um, to, to benefit. So. Um, the idea would be that uh, students wouldn't need to disclose unless they chose to. They would hopefully be able to use the materials as um, available. Um, it is proactive, so you're giving people materials at the start. You're delivering um, the session in a way at the start that will help them. Um, and it just promotes equality in the classroom. Because a lot of um, one thing that I came up against when I was looking at this, and I was looking at the um, Equalities Act of 2010, um, so you have in the Equalities Act you have protected groups um, and that's absolutely as it should be but at the same time it kind of separates out those people as being apart from other people so that's not real equality um, so I kind of struggled with that and I'm not really sure I came up with an answer but it was, it was something that I was aware of and I, and I thought hopefully as much as possible um, being aware of these issues and trying to make your practice inclusive it would promote at least or go towards genuine equality um, in the classroom. Um, so um, what I did, what I wanted to do was actually make very small changes to my practice which would hopefully be unobtrusive, um, so um, not, I suppose not obvious changes that people would say, oh that's different, that's because of this. Um, so I created a toolkit of materials, the materials that I was generally using, but I made sure um, that I had materials in print, um, online, uh, materials that were also in print but also reproduced as an e-learning task as well. Um, I made sure that print guides were set up so they could be reformatted um, if necessary, um, so for people with um, uh, dyslexia or other um, sight disorders which required the reformatting. Um, I also made sure that the students would have access to this toolkit prior to the session because uh, before that what we used to do was hand out all this material during the session. So um, I found that if students have access to this material prior to the session, they're actually much happier because they get a chance to review it, to understand uh, what the session is going to be about, to look through it at their leisure, and then to come in with, with much more confidence. 
Um, and then live teaching as well. What I actually did was, um, I actually in my head just went through, because I've been doing the session for a lot of years, and so I now just uh, delivered the session really off the top of my head. So I actually wrote down what I said. I sort of went through, wrote, uh, just typed it out as I was going through in my head um, a generous uh, session. And what I realised is that I do use quite a lot of colloquialisms, um, uh, slang, those sorts of things. Other constructions which may be hard to understand. So what I did then was to rewrite this script in simple instructional English. So hopefully it's understandable for um, for everybody. Um, uh, also, um, I tried to make sure that I was speaking slowly, that I was speaking clearly. I do have a tendency to speed up. Um, so those were the things, just to make sure that um, I was speaking in a way and I was delivering instruction in a way that everybody could understand. Um, I also created um, a range of in-class activities. So um, hopefully these activities would encompass a range of learning styles. So if one activity didn't work for one person, then hopefully another activity would work for them. Um, what I found worked particularly well was uh, peer support through group work. Um, what you tend to find is uh, setting a group task is that students start to teach each other based on what they personally have learned during the session. So that was very effective. Um, live polling and feedback is really great because live polling is very, um, it's non-confrontational. You ask the students a question, they click a button or they send you a text and that generates a live poll and it means that you're not putting them on the spot and they're far more likely to give you feedback, give you answers to questions rather than staring at you blankly hoping somebody else will say something. Um, and also hands-on individual activities, so worksheets, um, particularly online tasks I found work much better than physical worksheets. Um, so they also have a chance to work through what they've learned, um, ask you questions if, um, if, they, if they want to. So really, um, the conclusions uh, that I came to was, above all, be friendly, approachable, encouraging. If you're that sort of person, they'll, come, they'll feel comfortable coming to ask ask you for help if they, um, if they need help. Uh, create activities, materials which are helpful, uh, make sure any changes that you make are unobtrusive so there's not a big flashing arrow saying this one's for the disabled students. Um, don't make assumptions about the students understanding or difficulties or single out individual students. So if you have students um, whose uh, English is a second language, um, students who are, who are disabled, um, don't make assumptions about their understanding or lack of understanding. Um, create materials that will hopefully help them and then uh, let them come to you if they want to. Um, but do make absolutely clear that the students can always ask for help and make it clear when those periods are, so when there are breaks that they can actually talk to you individually um, if they would like to. I think that's everything. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we should have to say goodbye to you now. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, I've got to go to another meeting. But... <laughs> sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, hi everybody. Um, so my focus is a little different to uh, Sonia's. Um, I'm a librarian and uh, teaching library skills is just part of my role. So the PG CAP course was an opportunity to, to explore this, uh, this area. Um, so cultural capital is something that we explored on the course. Um, and I chose to specifically investigate um, 
the value of cultural <coughs> capital in the admissions process and also uh, throughout the student experience for different social groups. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that I discovered that it was uh, of significant value. Um, so, so my, um, my interest was piqued really um, from the course and by some excellent work by Anna on um, admissions to arts and sciences courses at Oxford. And um, this really resonated with me as a librarian, this, this idea that cultural knowledge uh, which included, you know, reading habits, this kind of thing. This seemed like a really um, appropriate area for me to look into. Um, and another reason why this resonated with me is because um, I'm a first-generation attendee myself. So I was reading through this literature about uh, students who went to state schools, onto their local FE college, onto Polytechnic to study arts, and I was like, this is me, I'm reading about me here, I need, to, uh, I need to explore this a little bit further. So, wanted to find out more about admissions and also continue that throughout the student journey and that this would enable me to kind of bring it back to my own teaching. Okay, so what I learned. Uh, so I'm thinking about um, cultural capital here as Broadly speaking, uh, you know, knowledge of the uh, dominant culture in society. And on the admissions side, I'm sure you're all familiar with these ideas, um, that different social groups have got different types, different amounts of cultural capital, and that this affects um, all of the things that I've listed on the, on the slide there. So whether they actually continue into higher education at all, the type of institution that they apply to, the nature, the subject of the course, the level of the qualification, how well they do in the application process, uh, what they understand of entrance tests, and also how they do at interviews. So the, um, the components of cultural capital that I'm thinking about here are sort of information on all of these milestones. So some students will have um, crucial information and knowledge from their parents, from other contacts, um, resources from their school on things like, you know, the tests or interview coaching, this kind of thing. Um, and another component that I considered here was around um, the culture and the environment that they face when they go to an interview. So is it one that they're completely at home with or do they feel like a fish out of water? So, um, so I would suggest, and, and the literature suggested that the influence of these, um, of these capitals, of this information, continued when students arrived at university and that it played a role in how well they settled into their new environment, how easy was it for them to settle in. Again, the culture, um, you know, how comfortable were they? Is it a very familiar culture or a completely different one to what they've um, come from? 
Um, I also considered language um, and the, the role in their uh, communication with tutors. So were they completely familiar with the style of language that they were, were faced with? Um, and also the sort of unspoken communication as well and expectations of tutors that aren't necessarily voiced. How do people grapple with those? Um, and what's their understanding of, of the student role and what it means to demonstrate your understanding and to perform that, that role um, of student. It also comes into play in their level of expectation around the support and resources that are available to them at university. So if they've come from um, a very well-resourced environment, that's what they'll expect when they come to university. But if they don't, uh, they'll have very different, very different expectations. So again, I would suggest that the, the information on all of these, these milestones and these areas um, continues to be of value and impact on, on the student's academic performance once they're at uh, university. So, after reading many, many journal articles, what did I actually do with all of this information? Um, so in terms of changing my teaching practice, everything that I'd learnt about capitals made me rethink the library inductions that I teach. So I didn't think about them anymore as just a sort of a tick box in enrolment week, something that I'd got through. I actually thought, gosh, these are really important, you know, to get students at this crucial time and to help them settle into their their new life. It also made me really aware of my teaching environment. I teach classes at the Morn Library on Chancery Lane. Has anybody actually seen the Morn Library? A few people are nodding. Um, it's a very grand and imposing neo-Gothic building. Um, Students persist in believing that it was in the Harry Potter films, but it wasn't. But that gives you a sense of this kind of, you know, the grandeur and the history. So it can be quite scary for students. So this made me um, really mindful of uh, being, you know, being a friendly face, but also encouraging students to think of this space as theirs, to go and open doors, to explore the building and actually feel at home in the, uh, in the environment. Um, it also made me really aware about promoting both the classes that I teach, which are uh, mostly voluntary, but also what I mentioned earlier about the levels of support and levels of resources that are available. So um, depending on students' past experience, um, I needed to kind of reach out to as many students as possible and let them know that all of these things are available to them because based on their previous experience, they, their expectations may be uh, very different. So I mentioned language earlier. Uh, so it really made me uh, consider the language that I use um, in my sessions. I was teaching uh, some sixth form students 
a while ago, um, recommending this e-book on the British Empire and that e-book on the British Empire, and off I was going, and, and one of them shouted out, what's an e-book? I was like, well, good question, you know, I didn't bother to tell you that, did I? So, really, as Sonia said in her session, really thinking about language that we use, normally without thinking. Um, and uh, related to that as well, being really explicit in instruction. So um, not just assuming that people know certain things or, or understand you, but really spelling it out. So probably the most important thing that I learned from the course was the value of taking some time and space to kind of reflect on my practice critically. Um, and I think my last point was just to say that it's not always um, in the literature. You know, in, in my experience, the literature kind of turned it back on me and made me think, well, what experiences have I got that I can actually um, you know, bring to bear? So that was it. Thank you. You have that special issue in front of you, which is the result of that course. I mean, you have probably gathered from my introduction that it was a slightly sort of haphazardous enterprise endeavour. It's uh, clearly a few magnitudes uh, smaller than the projects we heard about this morning, which are institution-wide um, research projects or interventions with a range of stakeholders involved. I mean, this is very much sort of was a group of students two years in a row, it's the project we did, it's the publication we've got now. I think it's sort of had impact on individual practice. It's not completely clear where we will go from here in terms of institutional impact there. In every other course that's running there, a lot of issues where students, participants say, well, what's the institutional response? Where are our guidelines on how to do this? It seems ineffective that each of us is sort of reinventing it from first principles, what we should do about um, inclusion. And I think there is sort of a tension that the institution wants to put it on the teaching staff, and the teaching staff, even with a lot of goodwill, uh, they want um, some help and guidance. Um, I mean, there was literally one participant last year who discovered inequality as a result of this course, which was quite a... My, a an experience. He had been to a private school and then to Cambridge and then he's now teaching a very traditional subject at the institution and I think through this module he was suddenly, I never thought there were students who don't do Latin at school. I mean, it was sort of, but as soon as he had realised that and that that could be an issue and the sort of issues that followed from it, it was like he was sort of like a complete convert. He said, we really must do something about it. <laughs> this is not a good state of affairs. So there's a lot of goodwill there. Students are willing, participants are changing their practice. Um, but the other institutional response is still a little bit unclear what we will do. Uh, currently, the master plan for next year is to have half an hour compulsory diversity training for all academic staff to reduce the attainment gap in performance for BME students. Um, just the half an hour. Yeah. Then, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.